All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Brownie Points. I'm Dan. I'm Nick. And this is the podcast where a guy with a film degree and a guy who knows how to work a DVD player talk to you about movies. This week, Dan and I only saw one movie in the theaters this week because I've thought about going to see Midway and then I saw the runtime and was like, nah, screw that. I'm not seeing that. We saw the follow-up to last week's Time Machine, Dr. Sleep. And then we took the Time Machine to 1994 and watched the live-action adaptation of the classic Hanna-Barbera cartoon, The Flintstones. All of that on this week's episode of Brownie Points. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. As always, we like to start off the show with a segment not dedicated to our film reviews. We don't like to jump right into Except them. Except the last two weeks where they were film reviews. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. We try to have a little bit of fun right before the actual film reviews. And um, we fail and, a lot. <laughs> uh, with a segment that we call Brownie Bites. Um, as Nick said, our last couple brownie bites have been solo reviews, um, but that's kind of par- part of the fun with this. Is uh, we will do solo reviews. Um, we will talk about trailers that we just recently saw. We will talk about things that happened in the news, which we haven't done in a while. <laughs> um, or we will do uh, these fun <laughs> things in the news, which we haven't done in a while. By the way, movies now don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> Um, or like we have done in the past a lot, um, in this case, uh, these fun little list ideas, uh, these fun little exercises that we give each other where, uh, one of us would come up with a topic and then we make a list based on it. And, um, per usual, Nick came up with this idea of (laughs) three of our favorite cinematic scenes slash shots, like either a shot incorporated into the context of a scene that was so iconic or just top, a general top three movie moments. And th- this is different than like our top uh, three theater experiences. This actually pertains to the movie. Yeah, there, these are actual moments in a movie that are three of our favorite personal moments in a movie um, versus theatrical experiences, which is just strictly like three things that happened while we were watching the movie in the theater that just were bizarre. <laughs> like and, the lady freaking fun. out about her purse being stolen. That could have happened in any movie. Or the or the theater losing their mind when Ma slapped the window as hard as humanly possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey! <laughs> you forgot to change. Yeah. <laughs> God. God, that was so fun. Oh, or no. Speaking they, of change, I need to change my pants. My God. Or, <laughs> or the guy in our screening of Endgame. That was like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that guy's amazing. Jesus, I will that never. That guy is my hero. Oh, my God. He I, shouts obscenities whenever he wants. God. It's not restricted by a rating of a podcast. Oh, if we can, if we can just reminisce for us for just a brief moment, just how glorious experiencing Endgame was together. That was. Do you remember that those like real men of genius Budweiser or Bud Light commercials? Oh, oh, oh! I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's very that, that vaguely. That guy in yeah. Endgame deserves his own real men of genius. Oh, absolutely. I I agree. Um, but anyway, <laughs> for this list, um. Uh, since you usually are the one that comes comes up with this list, 
Uh, Nick, I will let you start. What is your number three for favorite movie moments? Uh, favorite movie moment, uh, number three. We mentioned it last week uh, in our Rogue One review. The Darth Vader scene. Um, it's fan service, but it's like fan service done the best way possible. Um, the sheer force, anger, uh, brutality, rage, hate, everything just into that into that you know thirty seconds of screen time is just. It's better than the Mona Lisa. It's better than the Sistine Chapel. It's just so perfect and amazing. Um, <laughs> I've never been happier watching poor defenseless people be slaughtered. Uh, but it's 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 so it's so exactly the Darth Vader thing. Like throwing out a video game. It's a lot like the opening of Star Wars: The Force Unleashed. Um, where it's just like, there is nothing that can defeat him. And he's just having fun while killing. Um, I oh, we love just say it. he's having fun versus just like, you're in my way, I'm on a mission? No, I, I'm pretty sure he enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> I mean, look at his face. He might have been smiling. Um, <laughs> uh, that was, sorry, that really got me. That was really funny. <laughs> Um, but yeah, a great scene. I remember seeing it in the theater. I, uh, I'll never forget. Like when you see his, uh, his shuttle flying over with the, with the two TIE fighters and just thinking, what is it going to happen? And then just, you know, they show the people in the hall and at the end of the hallway, it's dark and you just hear his breathing apparatus kick in for once. And it's like, oh my God, they're going to do it finally. It's why it's why I'm convinced we need a rated R Darth Vader standalone movie of him finishing off the Jedi Order and finishing Order 66. Um, I love that scene. Well, how many were left? My only question is how many were left after that besides Obi Wan and Yoda? Did they imply there there were that many left? Uh, expanded universe wise, there actually is uh, reference to references to several that survived. Oh no, let's not open up that can of worms for the emails. Well, in novel 66. No, I mean, but I mean, like, the thing that I'm referencing a lot is Star Wars Force Unleashed, but I mean, that oh, okay. whole game is um, Darth Vader is going around for the Emperor, finishing off the Jedi Order. And when he's killing a Jedi, he sees his son use the Force, and Darth Vader, and the kid's like, two and so darth vader realizes if he takes him because of how strong he is like he actually like stops darth vader from doing something that's a pretty strong force being so darth vader kills the dad takes the kid and trains him to be his apprentice and in the beginning of the game the apprentice is going around killing people in the jedi order that survived order 66 so it happened like they you know as as good as clone troopers were you have to remember they were also stormtroopers and stormtroopers proved to be pretty inept uh yeah they're if they're shooting indicates anything <laughs> yeah so that's my number three scene I, I i i love it it's so nice nice um my my number three 
um, kind of comes with a little bit of, um, I want to just personally throw out a little bit of a spoiler for it. Um, I didn't talk with you off mic about it because, um, this was one that I honestly had a little bit of trouble narrowing down outside of my number one and two. And, um, given that this may ruin if we actually do it for the time machine, I mean, I don't... I don't know if we ever will do it for the time machine. I just personally really, really, really love this movie. And um, if it ever does come up on mic, I just uh, – well, outside of this, uh, we'll just cross that bridge when we get there. Um, do you care if I marginally spoil a movie that I'm not convinced that we'll ever watch for the show? I don't care. <clears throat> okay. It is, um, it is from 2007 – uh, from director John Carney, uh, his independent film Once. Um, I'm gonna be honest with you. Yeah, you can spoil everything in this movie. Oh, uh, I've okay. literally never heard of it, so I have no anticipation <clears throat> built for it, really. Okay. Um. All right then. So Once is a film from Ireland. Um. Like I said, from 2007, and it stars one of my favorite musicians, uh, Glenn Hansard, and uh, Marquetta and Glova. Um. They were in a band together called The Swall Season, but um, they um, star in this film together as um, Glenn is a street musician just trying to make it – just trying to make it big, like just chasing that dream of being a musician. And um, Marquetta Anglova is just kind of a day laborer. She just kind of does – she does cleaning in houses. She um, is just trying to make ends meet that way, and – she sees him playing music and uh long story short they end up uh making music together they have a little bit of uh, love interest like with literally each other. making music or they have sex no 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 no. there there actually is no sex in the movie but okay. they do they do find a way to get alone to help make this album and he's the lead singer they get some su- uh, supporting band members she's playing the piano and singing a little bit um they make this album and uh, there's a little bit of a love interest between the two of them, and I won't spoil exactly that, like, a pivotal scene in that movie, but um, I will spoil that they kind of don't end up together because that ties into my favorite – one of my favorite shots I've ever seen in a movie. Um, at the end of the film uh, – all right, fast forward, like – Two minutes if you don't want to hear the ending at once. Um, uh, there's a moment when Glenn has enough money that he is going to go find his ex-girlfriend and uh, just leave Dublin and go um, – I can't remember where he was going to go, but he's going to leave. And um, Marquetta ends up staying behind because she's got a kid and – when we're cutting through this montage of uh, he's at the airport and she's just at home with her kid, there's this shot of Glenn walking down this uh, hallway, walkway. I don't know what the right word is for, for the specific. It's like one of those walkways where you're walking between like check-in and the terminal. And part of it is because this movie was shot for literally like $10,000 that the lighting's not that great. But um, it kind of just adds to this – it adds to this emotionality to it in the scene that I can't quite see what his face is saying. So I have to kind of project what I think that he's feeling and be- – again, because of the lighting, 
I can't tell if he's smiling and he's happy from everything that happened into the film, even though he didn't end up with her, or if he is sad, like, and he's kind of just having a hard time letting go of not being able to be with Marquetta. And again, I just, something in his face that I just cannot tell. And the enigma of this little five second shot of just the cameras in front of him walking down this hallway. And I can't tell if he's happy or he's sad until he walks faster than the camera. And then it cuts to, um, the next shot. I won't spoil the literal last scene of the film, but that this little specific moment, uh, just really, I, I just love the ambiguity of it so much because, of this emotional romantic journey that you've gone on through the whole entirety of the film. And then the way it ends, they're not together. And then you just can't tell, like, I kind of feel like that he was just saying that to her and just really in his mind knows it's still not going to work with his ex. He really wanted to be with her in the end. And I just, it's still a really beautiful film, but it's also got that little bit of sadness into it that just it, – it's also – if we were doing a list of movies that make me cry every time I watch it, I do cry every single time I watch once. And that little that little moment at the end just is one of my favorite shots I've ever seen in a movie. Um, so, yeah, I will – yeah, that's my number three. So do you have any questions, comments, or want to go on to your number two? Like, <laughs> Let's go on to my number two. <laughs> uh, sorry i was a little long-winded there but <laughs> a little bit um <laughs> my uh my number two so for my list i, I kind of picked scenes that i don't necessarily i wouldn't say are like my favorite scenes of all time um granted the darth vader one is um they're not my favorite scenes of all time they're not my favorite shots of all time but they are ones where i they i have consistently every time i see him no matter how many times i see him i have the same reaction to him every single time to the same degree um so my number two is the uh and it's not necessarily that i think they're great these are just like yeah i kind of already explained that um my number two is the scene with uh bane in the dark knight rises where he's talking to bruce in the pit after uh having broke his back uh, the hope scene. Um, I, you know, I, you've said that you really didn't like Dark Knight Rises. I, I at one point I called this my favorite movie of all time. Whoa! I was not really analyzing film that much at that time. Okay, well, to chill be, out. To, to, but well, I really, okay. I do really like this movie. Well, to level the to level the playing field. I said things about Man of Steel that I do regret in subsequent viewings. In I don't the- necessarily <laughs> regret what I said. Um, I just don't agree with it anymore. Yeah. Um, okay. But I really <laughs> like this scene um, because of not necessarily the acting, and I and I know that it's you know just an exposition scene that's just explaining a lot of stuff, and Nolan kind of has a problem with it. Uh, but I really like the um, just the explanation. Like I, I, I love the 
part I love the opening of it where Bruce Wayne's like why don't you just go ahead and kill me I really like that you know Bane is smart enough to understand uh, you know you don't fear death you welcome it uh, so the uh, greatest torture to you is to uh, make you realize that everything you fought and worked for is uh, is going to be no more and going to be destroyed uh, and that he explains that the, uh, the, the greatest torture, uh, to people is to give them hope because they're going to constantly be working towards, uh, getting what they want. But in reality, if you only give them hope and it's not really an achievable goal, they're just going to constantly be working and thinking they're getting closer to something they want when in reality, they're just expending, uh, energy and they're not getting any closer to what they want. Um, I love the scene. I love uh, how, ironically, how hopeless it makes me feel at the end of it. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's expertly written. I think it's mainly the atmosphere that the scene provides with the dialogue and the acting in the movie as well as the visuals uh, provided in the scene. Uh, just the honestly, the real kind of psychological torture that it is for, uh, for Bruce Wayne's character, I really, really like. Nice. That might be worth giving a reappraisal on the time machine. Um, not really, like, I don't... Oh, it will be. We just gotta get through a couple other movies before then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I mean, maybe we could just... I mean, I don't know what kind of benefit we'd have just rewatching Batman Begins and Dark Knight, since, I mean, we obviously both love those, but yeah. I think we could get a pretty... I, I don't know. I would personally like to well it's just like batman v superman when we review it are we actually going to watch man of steel before it or not oh what are we going to review first batman versus superman or passion of the christ um <laughs> they're the same movie <laughs> clearly oh oh inside jokes unless i actually have talked about that on mic before i don't remember um <laughs> no you have not talked about it on mic Oh, okay, well, inside joke, I really Because I remember you saying, I'm not going to mention this on mic. And then a week later, you're like, I'll mention it. Oh, <laughs> well, okay, inside joke, I really want us to watch Passion. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, no, that's all, I, I, yeah, that's a good number two. Um, <laughs> uh, <Lada>. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, my number two favorite scene in film um, actually comes from a film that we've watched on uh, for the show uh, very early in the show. Uh, it's from Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. It's the literal mm, first time for me to zone out. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the literal first shot of the movie. Um, I I there's something about what was the first shot of the movie? It's Alex's face, um, that close up of his face doing the Kubrick layer. And then it slowly pulls out and shows the entire Corova milk bar while he's <laughs> milk bar. Well, while, while he's talking about like, that is me. That is Alex. And these are my three drugs. And the, just the way that it introduces you to the film, like we find out that this is how the characters are going to be talking. This is a kind of how few, pretentious this movie is going to be this, for the entire runtime. No, okay, calm down. Um, how sty- <laughs> Hold on, calm down! How the art direction is going to be stylized in this futuristic, like, not quite dystopian, but clearly there's at least, like, some sort of income inequality, something going on. Um, the way that all the costumes look, the way that 
the that that um uh that music in the background that like and all framed and introducing you into this this specific london all through this very slow pullback all centered directly on alex's kubrick glare which uh fun fact the easy way to do a kubrick glare is stare at something and then tilt your head ever so slightly downward and then that's the kubrick glare and just it's just so haunting his face and then the way that it's like drawing back the curtains in its own way while alex is uh saying his opening monologue um it just it it's something that was etched into my mind and i've never forgotten that shot and like that really was such a perfect one of the more perfect ways to set the tone for a movie that i've literally ever seen and i mean i obviously love the the rest of the film but i mean credit where credit is due like setting the tone this was for me one of the the best examples of like how a filmmaker from the get-go like if you want to grab your audience like you if you want to do the best job at grabbing your audience and pulling them in like all right this is what we're gonna do and at least for me never losing their attention this is a a prime example of just like all right we have you and this is the ride we're gonna go on (laughs) we have you pucker up and <laughs> I just, I, I just, I, I mean, like in our previous episode when we talked about the movie itself, like I have nothing but praise to say for this, and it really starts at the beginning with and, again one of the best shots I've review, ever seen. And listen to our review of this movie to hear Dan and I go more in depth on how we feel about this movie because it's very, 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 very drastically different. Oh yeah, it's. I think it's, you've actually said that's your favorite review. Have I said that was my favorite, our favorite review? I think you, not on Mike. I thought you said it to me at some point that you really liked that review. I do. I did. I did really like talking about Clockwork Orange with you. Um, if I, if you're putting me on the spot right now, I think Ad Astra might be our favorite, my favorite review from the two of us. Like honestly, mine might be Crawl, <laughs> just because. <laughs> Just because of how ridiculously in-depth we went into that movie, we was, reviewed the movie for its running time. There was no reason for us to talk about Crawl for literally 80 minutes. Like, yeah. <laughs> and the movie Ten was like... Ten minutes of which weren't even about the freaking movie. Yeah, and the movie's like barely 85 minutes. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I freaking love that one. I would just pick Ad Astra just because we, like, we really disagreed on Clockwork Orange, but it didn't... I mean, maybe I need to re-listen to it, but it felt like – I didn't feel like we got as contentious as we did for Ad Astra. Like, we were really like – Or Zombieland no. 2. <laughs> okay, When I yeah. told you to shut your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Again, it wasn't that aggressive, but yes. I, <laughs> if we – okay, top three most most aggressive reviews we've had. Clockwork Orange, Zombieland 2, Ad Astra. <laughs> uh, what about um, Easy Rider? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I no. can't remember. Here's the thing. Easy. I remember not really liking it, but like being willing to concede. Like, I get how it's big, but I really didn't like the like just like artsy like. Ooh, and now they're driving, and now they're driving, and well, now that was they're driving. 
Well, that was the period where I was having you watch all these old movies, like, just like... It was the period that led to an off-mic conversation where I was like, dude, you have to take more risks with the movies you pick, man. Like, yeah, that was... Because I was like, you have to ev- eventually not like a movie. Yeah, that was... <laughs> That was amongst many amongst many rewrites in terms of like the structure of the show, uh, turning the time machine into an actual journey for both of us versus, hey, Dan wants Nick to watch this um. instead of being just, hey, Dan's gonna show Nick a movie he likes that Nick definitely won't like. Well, I, finding that out after the fact really was the biggest thing. Was just like, oh, Nick has hated every movie I've wanted to show him. Um. <laughs> I think the one that broke the streak was Virginia Woolf. You like Virginia Woolf. Don't say that. I'm saying it broke the streak because I ended up liking it. Oh, okay. I see what you mean now. Never mind. Sorry. I miss her. I think Virginia Woolf was the first kind of risky one for you. Well, yeah, I hadn't seen Virginia Woolf either, so I wanted to experience that together. Yeah. We should get back to our scenes. Um, anyway, yeah, back to yeah. Uh, enough suspense, Nick. What is your favorite movie scene of all time? So this – it's not favorite movie scene of all time, but it's it's my I, number one. You know, whenever I watch it, I have the same reaction, the same level every single time I watch it. And it's the uh, Jingle Bell Rock scene from Mean Girls, specifically <laughs> the juke – specifically – the CD player hitting the guy in the face <laughs> just because of the physics of the scene. Uh, um, this makes me feel I, like I should every time, every time I see this movie and that scene's like, like, okay, they start the dance. I actually start laughing. Like the moment that she hits the play button on the CD player, nothing funny has happened yet, by the way. Um, I just start like, like laughing with anticipation and then when, when like, she, like, uh, taps it with her toe and it starts skipping, I'm crying with laughter at that point. Just because you then, know it's coming. Because <laughs> I know that it doesn't make sense. So then she, like, goes to fix it and kicks it. And, like, the speed she's going, she should just kind of, like, nudge it a little harder than she did when it started skipping the CD. And then it like jump cuts to a tight zoom of the guy's head. And then the CD player like gains like 30 miles an hour. And it just demolishes the guy's face. (laughs) (laughs) It makes no sense. And I absolutely love it. And I lose my mind laughing every single time I see this scene. I love that this is your number one. That is so freaking funny. It's such a stupid, <laughs> pointless scene. But like I said, my rankings were based off of not necessarily what I thought were the best scenes, but they consistently give me the same feeling and reaction to the same severity slash degree every single time. I I watched actually uh, this not necessarily was the idea for this countdown, but it got solidified as my number three after this weekend because I watched it uh, this weekend. And, like, we almost paused the movie because I was crying so hard with laughter. Oh, my God. That's awesome. <laughs> um, Jesus. Uh, man, I feel, I feel a little silly now, like, not having a – comedy on my list at all because uh, uh but 
anyway, my number one movie scene that, um, after misspeaking to what Nick said, just, I, it's one of those iconic moments that I just, I get the same reaction out of it every single time I watch it. Uh, it's a movie that I actually just very recently rewatched, uh, not for the show, but, um, I went to, um, a, you actually fat- have time to watch movies, not for the show. I, I make time for it. Yes. Um, especially uh, when you don't it follow hockey. So that's probably how. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't watch. I don't. If I don't I'm not watching a... a movie for the show, a lot of times I'm watching a hockey game or asleep or a baseball game. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's winter time now, though. Yes, I don't follow daily sport. I don't follow a daily sports team. Um, but <laughs> anyway, um, I went and saw Alien for its 40th anniversary. Um, it was a Fathom event through TCM Turner Classic Movies and. God, I don't even know how many times I've seen Alien now, but um, the chestburster scene is my number one iconic movie scene. It's still absolutely terrifying to watch. It's still surprising. It's still just one of the most shocking moments in cinematic history. Like, the whole lead up to it, like, uh, the Nostromo is going for a distress call, and then they end up at this planet and they find these eggs and holy crap john hurt got attacked and then like they're worried and they're worried and they're thinking oh okay oh my god what was happening but then it falls off and john gets up and he's okay and it's like oh thank god like out of context those last couple sentences sounds really inappropriate oh <laughs> sorry <laughs> uh, but but yeah then like the immediate buildup, like, they're having breakfast, they're all just laughing, whatever, like, talking about uh, whatever, and then John starts coughing, and then it's like he's choking, and then his chest hurts, and he just starts screaming in pain, and now in, in subsequent reading, the fact that John just did this out of the blue, and Ridley Scott, the director, didn't give any of the actors heads up this was going to happen, Yeah, he jumps up on the table, and then he starts freaking out. And then um, a, a squib in his chest just explodes, and all the all the actors are just screaming, just like, "Oh my god!" And then, obviously, through editing, they figured out the 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 shot of like the actual alien like looking around and then actually jumping out and running away, but. That build up in just that moment before we see the alien shot itself, like just John just, oh, oh, he just starts screaming and screaming and his chest concaves a little bit and just like, what the hell is happening? And then boom, and then the alien pops out. Just, God, that is absolutely horrifying. And so, I. So, so two points about that scene. Wouldn't it have been hilarious, though, if. For some reason, like everyone's freaking out, and just like one guy is so hungry, he doesn't care. Like, <laughs> he's or he just like at... still sitting there eating. He's like, someone passed the soy sauce. He looks at his he the chest burst happens, and he looks in his bowl, and he just kind of slowly tilts his head back up, just like, dude, you just got blood in my cereal. Like, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like an album title. Um. And the other thing is, do you know what would have got the face hugger off of his, uh, off of his face, uh, without having a chest burster get implanted in him? What? 
if someone would have kicked a boombox into his face. (laughs) (laughs) Just hits it and it pops. He just runs away. (laughs) Something I've always found funny about the Alien movies is like, has anyone ever tried to just shoot it off someone's face? Well, no, because you're going to shoot the dude in the face and then... Like, let alone you shot him in the face. Like, he's going to have acid pouring into it, too. Yeah, but but what I'm getting at is no one knows that it's acid blood yet. And yes, honestly, what if there's, like, one movie where they establish that, like, the guy that gets the face hugger really early on is, like, a huge jerk? Like, they're like, yeah, man, no one likes Dave. And they're like, there's something – there's an alien on his face. And they're like, well, what if we shoot it off? And they're like, I don't know. That might kill him. And you hear a gunshot go off in the background, and he's dead. And someone's like, I mean, it was worth a shot. Dude, I don't like all the people that I work with, but I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't shoot them in the face of a face hugger. Grab them, like. I mean, me either. But these people are in space for like long periods of time. Dave could really get on their nerves. I, I like sh- say he constantly like doesn't put the the cap back on the toothpaste, or he What's because uh, they have cuts, a commu- they have parts, communal toothpaste. <laughs> he cuts parts of the daily newspaper out before everyone's got the chance to read them. Or, oh yeah, the the daily nebulous. <laughs> or may or maybe he just like always leaves the windows down. <laughs> and, and is killing like a guy a day on accident. Damn it, Dave! Put the window up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like sorry, I was pooping. Just want some fresh air. <laughs> Light a candle. Oh, okay. Oh no, wait, pure oxygen. Don't do that too. Like. In a, I actually have a cool thing. So take take your three scenes that you just said. Okay. Out of any person in any of those three scenes, who would you recast Nick Cage as? Oh, I'm not having Nick Cage touch once. I'm just, no, I'm not having him touch once. Um, so that leaves, dude. Nick Cage could do a gnarly Cooper glare. I think Nick. I think Nick I think Cage. Nick Cage just does them. Yeah, I mean, like I feel he's, like he, he's like waiting for the bus. I don't know why he'd be on the bus, but he's just waiting for it. Oh, actually, I say that, and he's literally doing a Cooper glare in the Snake Eyes poster. Hmm. Um. So I guess I want to change it to seeing Nick Cage freak out from a chest burster replacing John Hurt. <laughs> I think I've got I've got two replacements for him. Okay. I, I would have right. him I would have him as Bane but with the voice pitch changing. Like <laughs> Take back your <laughs> God, I that, take that was back. Bad. Or what is it? Yeah, take the fire take rises. Back, take the fire rises. <laughs> take back your city, Gotham. So I would have him either be Bane or I would have him be Gretchen Wieners in Mean Girls, the girl that kicks the boombox <laughs> into the guy's face, like in like the borderline lingerie thing that they have to wear for the dance. These, these, like, he's these, got like not shaved legs and <laughs> and a huge Adam's apple. He's like Jangle Bell, Jangle Bell, Jangle Bell Rock. <laughs> we only wear we only wear pink on Wednesdays. <laughs> You can't sit with us. <laughs> oh my god. No, no, Wait, no. But here's these, the thing. Here's the thing. And the rest po- of the movie, and the rest of the movie, it's whoever the actress is that played Gretchen Wieners. Rachel but like McAdams. that one scene is Nicolas Cage. 
Oh, They're like, be... yeah, she was sick today, so I, I, he's Gretchen Wieners. Oh, that'd be weird. My father, the inventor of the toaster strudel. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that line. <laughs> Are toaster strudels raviolis or dumplings? What? <laughs> You've never heard this question? No, what? I've literally been kept up at night from this question. Wait, say it are one more time. Are toaster strudels slash Pop-Tarts, are they dumplings or are they raviolis? Um, technic what? Neither? I, that's really, I, Same thing goes for Hot Pockets, man. Ooh. I've lost sleep over this. Okay, that's way more perplexing when you propose it as a Hot Pocket. Because I guess you could say a Hot Pocket's just a big ravioli. I think that's the first ravioli. time that sentence has ever been uttered. <laughs> well, hi. <laughs> <laughs> that's way, that has to be the quote of the week, by the way. It's way more perplexing when you pose that as a Hot Pocket. <laughs> Wait, let me say it as Nicolas Cage. That's way more perplexing as you po- when you pose it as a Hot Pocket. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Please don't okay. forget by the time you're editing this. No, no, I know you're not going to let me forget either. Um, Jesus. Okay, I think with that, I think we should wrap up this segment and um, start talking about Dr. Sleep. <laughs> what do you say? Sure. All right. Uh, with that, that is the end of our Brownie Bite segment. We will be back in a very brief moment and talk to you about uh, the adaptation of Stephen King's sequel to The Shining Doctor Sleep. We'll be right back. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Nick and I only saw one movie in theaters this weekend, and it is the sequel to the Stanley Kubrick horror classic, also based upon... The Stephen King novel, Dr. Sleep. It was written and directed by Mike Flanagan, who you may know most popularly from the Netflix show, The How, The, The What, The Haunting of Hill House? I was, uh, sorry, I always get the title mixed up. Uh, yes, The Haunting of Hill House. And, uh, <clears throat> like I said, it was from a Stephen King novel. It stars Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, and Kaylee Curran, and Cliff Curtis. Uh, he was the friend that got Ewan McGregor uh, his job early in the film. And, yeah, with cornrows. Oh, sorry? The guy with cornrows? Yeah, that kind of looked like an older Colin Kaepernick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Oh my god, are we about to get political again? Nope, nope, no, 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 pump the brakes. No, 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 we're not going to go there. Um, I just thought throughout the film that he looked like uh, Colin Kaepernick. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, yes, this is the sequel to The Shining. And honestly, it was kind of – I would love to have been in Mike's shoes, like, to think of how to – create this film because Stanley Kubrick had such dislike of the Stanley Kubrick film because it deviated. Stephen King had such dislike. 
Yeah, Stephen. Sorry, Stephen King he said had, Stanley Kubrick didn't like the Stanley Kubrick films. Like, well, he could have fixed it. No, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Stephen King had such disapproval for the Stanley Kubrick film that uh, I mean, you kind of can't erase it. And we just watched it on the show two weeks ago. Um, where do you go? How do you stay true to this book that was a sequel to its own thing while also being a sequel to a film that took its own liberties in many, many, many different ways? Like, I, I, full disclosure, I have not read the book. I've only seen some YouTube videos about the differences between the novel and the book. So, um, I, 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 like I said, I just, I would just love to be in his shoes to figure out, like, from day one, how we got to this point. But that aside, what did I think of the film itself? I thought this movie was phenomenal. This movie was so good. It is easily the best film, uh, in terms of the horror genre that we, between Nick and I, have seen this year like we've seen a dozen or so in theaters or does that include time machines um no i don't think it's better than the i was Shining. gonna say because i i will agree with that statement if it's theater movies yes in terms of theater movies it's easily the best horror film that we've seen this year um i wouldn't put it above the shining um if i had yeah that I, that was my thing is i was like i will not say it's better than the shining yeah, I w- uh, I will say it's better than uh, Rosemary's Baby, though. Um, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> I I'll agree with you. It's better than Rosemary's Baby. Like, I mean, we already did that review, but Rosemary's Baby was disappointing in its own merits. But um, <laughs> um, no, I don't. I definitely think this is a step back from. The Shining, but it's definitely not a bad movie. It does a lot of things so well. Like, I was surprised at um, how much it made uh, Danny uh, dealing with his own uh, personal and inherited demons from Jack, such a central part of his character arc. Amongst everything else that happened in this film, like, um, I mean, we can go into it in the spoiler territory, but, um, I love the arc that he went through from start to finish. I love the fact that, um, oh, what was her name? The, uh, uh, Abra. I loved everything about Abra. I really loved the fact that, like, there was this whole cult of people who just ate people's shinings, like, they're vampires except not with blood yeah they're they're shining vampires like i just they're shiny vampires they are twilight (laughs) like the um the it was interesting in the fact that like the shining was very much kind of interpersonal and um it didn't it had a very simple narrative if if you think about it like this family moves into the overlook hotel and jack starts going crazy and danny's got this power but it's not really explored that well like it kind of just 
looks at the surface of it like Danny knows something is wrong, but he's too young to really understand what's going on. And then uh, poor Shelley Duvall is just kind of there in the middle, just like wanting to protect her son. But then her husband's going crazy as well. Like it's it's a much simpler narrative than this film. Like this one kind of expands. I don't want to say more traditionally, but this one has – I really admire that it expanded the world that The Shining took place in and took a lot of what um, – wasn't his name Dick, uh, the guy who was the head of the, uh, the the kitchen of the Overlook? Wasn't that yeah, his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took a lot of what Dick was alluding to and then made that the world around it. And yeah. Gee, oh my god, I don't – there's not really that much else I can say without going to spa- the spoiler territory. Like, this movie scared the crap out of me in many moments. Ian McGregor hit a home run. Rebecca Ferguson hit a home run as Rose in the Hat. Um, oh my god, I – we've I've personally thought that we've seen a lot of really good child performances this year, but uh, Kaylee Curran as uh, Abra – just I'm willing to put her at the top of the best child performance that we've seen this year. She was just exceptional in this movie. And um oh my god, I'm I'm uh, I wasn't uh, I'll end it with this. My hot take on this. I wasn't that big a fan of The Haunting of Hill House, but I knew Mike Flanagan was a good director from Oculus and there were a couple episodes of Hill House that I did like. Um, uh, listeners that have seen the show, the uh, the episode that takes place in the funeral home, and it's kind of simulated to be one continuous take. I mean, obviously, like, you can just watch that as a single episode and just understand that Mike Fennigan deserves to have been put in a pedestal that he has here. Um, regardless of what you think of the rest of the series, but <laughs> man, he he nailed this. I it's it's as good to me as what Denise Villeneuve did with uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, figuring out how to make a sequel and expand the world of Blade Runner that seemed untouchable. The Shining seemed untouchable in that same way, and honestly. Uh, Mike did just more than what I expected, and Doctor Sleep is definitely the best horror film that I've seen this year. Um, it's a full brownie pan with sprinkles for me on our scale. It's uh, a full brownie pan with sprinkles is a phenomenal film, if not an outright masterpiece. A pretty good film is a full pan of brownies. A so-so 50-50 is uh, a half pan. A pretty bad movie overall is a single brownie. And then uh, a borderline dumpster fire, if not outright dumpster fire, is so bad it doesn't even get a brownie. It gets a cookie filled with raisins. Um, I give this film a full pan or a full brownie pan with sprinkles. I, I absolutely loved Dr. Sleep. What did you think? Uh, I agree with pretty much everything. The one thing that I kind of want to point out, uh, is the scariness of the movie. Um, 
I mean, like the opening shot where they have the one person come to the door and the doorway is completely black and you just kind of slowly see the body, like the, the body, then the face, then like everything comes together. That really worked. And one thing I want to point out too, I said to Kelsey was, I was like, man, that, that was, that was really effective. And I kept like, uh, commending the movie. She's like, why do you keep commending it for like how good the scares were? And I was like, because when you see as many really crappy horror movies as I do in a year, <laughs> you tend to you tend to see, uh, you know, like tension built really well. And then the payoff is a really crappy jump scare. Um, there's maybe two jump scares in this movie, but they work like it. W- it makes sense that a loud sound would happen. It's not musically induced. So. I uh I want to commend the movie for you know the scares really working but yeah I give it I give it sprinkles um loved it and, and the thing that's funny too is watching the movie made me realize how much I I loved The Shining um, I knew <laughs> I really liked it because I gave a really high rating to it when we did our review but watching it made me realize like oh wow I really liked it my my one complaint for the movie and it's a really ticky tacky complaint is I wish the I wish the theme music for The Shining was in it more. Um, other than that, I don't really have a complaint about anything. It wasn't enough for you that they played it literally right in the beginning, and they actually used the old 1980s, uh, late 70s Warner Brothers logo? Yeah, like, honestly, what I would want... I, they played it, like, two times in the movie, right? Frankly, 20 times in the movie. But... <laughs> that's neither here nor there but yeah dude i I really dug it i really liked it um ewan mcgregor in the beginning looks like uh obi-wan kenobi hit some hard times after order 66 oh yeah oh Um, my god um do we or sorry i'll let you finish and then just tell me when you want to go into spoiler territory oh we can go now i mean I, i i pretty much agree with everything that you said and then uh uh, just I really wanted to commend the movie for like properly getting the scares to work. Yeah. But yeah, uh, we can go to spoilers. Okay, so from this point on, go ahead and check the timestamp for when we jump into the Flintstones. If you don't want to hear anything else, Nick and I clearly both love this shine. Or uh, sorry, Doctor Sleep. And yeah, it's spoiler territory from here on out. Um. Nick, go ahead and uh, – did you have anything else to add right there? Because I definitely have a couple bullet points that I don't want to go through. Like, uh, I mean, let me know if you have um, any thoughts. I, I found it I, I found it interesting uh, that he, uh, you know, after everything goes down with the shining – what's funny about the movie is it seems like – the logical follow-up to The Shining for a good chunk of time, then it's like, oh, this woman, this little girl has The Shining, and then it's, and then it ties back into actually like the movie The Shining. Um, so it like, it's like The Shining, and then someone was Shining, and then back to The Shining, um, which I thought was kind of funny or interesting. Well, um, well but, I mean, well, Dick alluded to in The Shining that a lot of people have the shine and they may not necessarily know it so him passing that on to abra like 
I mean, it made sense, like, in terms of world building. Um, I mean, if that's where you're going at. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I liked uh, in the beginning when he's having the nightmare. Like, this, the scare that I was talking about, the doorway being black, uh, the bathtub girl or woman, whenever she is in the f- the first time she's in the movie where she, like, shows up in the door, was is one of the scariest things I've seen in a film in several years. And it could have very easily been ruined with a jump scare where she, like, just bursts through the door and there's a loud chun. Instead, you slowly kind of see her fade into being visible. Um, the, uh, the, the one thing I do want to point out that's uh, not funny but kind of interesting, um, the actress that uh, is supposed to be Shelley Duvall's character uh one looks like her just a little less scary and um <laughs> she also it's it's kind of freaky how well she acts like Shelley Duvall that was something that was like something she, like I... Shelley Duvall's acting like Shelley Duvall's acting in the shining was really good but like this is even better because of how well she pulls off like this is Shelley Duvall's Shelley Duvall and then she's acting as well as Shelley Duvall did. It's it's interesting. That was something I wanted to ask. Like, um, what did you think? Because the film itself does not. Um, there are two shots that, through reading I've done, that were used from old footage, um, and they're both just driving shots that they. Um, that they switched from day to night and then they added some CG snow into it. Like they doctored, they doctored them a lot, but yeah, in terms of the, the first, I don't even want to say the first third of, excuse me, the first third of the film. Um, like the, I guess if you want to call it the prologue, um, every More sing- like epilogue for the shining. Yeah, it's like an epilogue for The Shining and a prologue for Dr. Sleep. All of that um, was all recreated sets, and nobody had, um, like, the digital face makeup done or anything like that. Like, Mike Flanagan specifically just casted people that kind of looked like Shelley Duvall and um, the, the little kid that played Danny Torrance. Um and I'm going to agree with you. The The woman that played Shelley Duvall was fa- was fantastic. And yeah. it didn't really bother me that the kid kind of didn't look like Danny Torrance. Like, because he still captured a lot of those mannerisms, right? And, um, yeah. um, and then the guy that played Dick, he had so – he just knew how to play that character so well, too. Like – He was a really good dick. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was. Um, <laughs> uh, what you? What did you think of uh, the Jack Nicholson guy? Because to me, I felt like that was the one that was the most uh, uh, noticeable. Is not the right word. Most. Mm, I don't know what the right word is. I, I don't want to say noticeable. Uh, it's not prominent because he's not really in that much of the movie. But You're... the most. I think the the hardest one to match, maybe. Are you talking about when um, 
near the end of the film, like, sorry, yes. guys, we're, <laughs> sorry, guys, we're going to time jump a little bit. Um, we're talking about near the end of the film when Ewan McGregor is in the golden ballroom and he goes to the same bar and he sits in the same seat and it's shot nearly identically to the shining. And he meets the bartender who calls himself Lloyd, like in the original film, but it's now an actor that is designed and made up to look as close to Jack Nicholson as possible. Because when when they showed him from the side, I was kind of like, uh, I mean, that kind of looks like Jack Nicholson. And then they showed him from the front, and I was like, that's Jack Nicholson's character. Well, uh, what did you think of him taking the moniker of Lloyd? Like, did you read anything into that? Because I was kind of curious why he would look like Jack Nicholson, but... Um, maybe maybe the hotel refers to itself as Lloyd. Like, maybe, maybe that's the demonic spirit in the hotel. So you, or the dark presence. That's not a bad idea. I mean, if Lloyd just haunts the bar and then he yeah. just happened to take over, or even just decided like, to embody like, you know, Jack. you know how uh, you know how the demon for like uh, the Exorcist, like in the sequels, was called Pazuzu. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's maybe that's like the Pazuzu for this movie. Like maybe it's Lloyd. Maybe maybe it's like Carl for Arnold Schwarzenegger in terminator dark fate um, <laughs> okay um but uh it, the monologue he goes on was very um devastating but very well written oh. where it's like i was like wow i don't think jack nicholson ever wanted to be married in that movie well i want to say that it's not the scariest movie of the of the or scariest moment of the film. Like I, I want to talk about the the scene that I thought was the scariest in the movie, but I, I want to talk about the scene I thought was the funniest in the movie. Oh well, hold on. I thought honestly that was one of the highlights of the movie was the fact that Ewan McGregor, Ewan McGregor right there in the same seat dealing with the same demons that he inherited from Jack and. I and that, hearing it from his dad. Exactly. I thought that was honestly so. I thought that was so powerfully done. I yeah, it was a very powerful scene. Um, dude, everything. I, that, I really like. I really like that scene. Everything that the actor playing. Let's. I mean, let's just say Lloyd, even though he looked like Jack. Like, take your medicine. Oh, it was Jack, dude. They showed him walking around with the axe. Well, yeah. I'm just saying, like. When uh, just it getting punctuated with it's time to take your medicine, and then Ian McGregor being what eight years sober at this point, like just yeah no, and I mean he's still I mean he still obviously gets taken by the ghosts, but um just oh my god I can't get over how powerful that moment was the entire scene with him in the golden room ballroom like that was probably yeah. i mean it, again it wasn't the. what did you think was the scariest one then oh the uh the scariest moment for me like dude it was it was um uh 
oh, what's his name? Oh, uh, Jeffrey Tembley, uh, or, uh, not Joseph, um, the kid from Good Boys that we just saw over the summer, um, and he was in The Room. Did you see that? He was in A Room. No, not, not The Room with Tommy Wiseau. Uh, we saw Good Boys over the summer. Do you remember him, the main kid? Yeah, 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 but you said he was in A Room. What, what room? Oh, no, 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 sorry. I, uh, the movie was called Room. It was him and Brie Larson, and, um, it's about a woman that was, uh, held captive in, like, this, uh, fallout shelter for, like, over five, seven years, something like that. Uh, okay, what, what scene was he in? Uh, oh, Jacob Trimbley. Sorry, Jacob Trimbley. Sorry, listeners that were yelling at the or yelling at their phones. Um, <laughs> Jacob Trimbley was the baseball player that could read people's minds. Oh, you thought that was the scariest? Dude, when he was getting murdered. I don't think that was the scariest. Oh, dude, I found that so unsettling. Like. The f- Dude, they I just... I found it unsettling, yes. I didn't find it scary. I wouldn't say scary. Oh, no. Hands down. That was the most unsettled I was with the film, was the fact that, like, they picked up this this 10-year-old or 11-year-old kid, and they just start stabbing him to death just to suck out the the essence of him, the, the, the shining out of him. So... Dude, that was so, so unsettling to watch. I was so uncomfortable watching that. Spe- speaking, of, speaking of inhaling the mist... Uh, after that scene where they talk about how hard it is to come by mist, when I can't remember his exact name, but I think it was like Grandpa Joe or something like that in the gang in the gang of people that was sucking up mist. Oh right. When he dies, when he when he dies and like that giant cloud of mist comes out from him, I leaned over to Kelsey and I was like, I mean, they should probably start inhaling his mist, right? And she goes, What? And then they start and they like all rush to get the get the mist, and she starts laughing, and I was like. I mean, I was just saying, like, that was a lot. They're talking about starving. I mean, it, they shouldn't let it go to waste. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I mean, if you want to segue into that, like, what did you think of uh, the were – weren't they called the Lost Ones or the – what were they called? Uh, I didn't even know they had a name. Well, no, it was it was well what you what you were calling Grandpa Joe. He was um, that ritual when they turned over the um, when they turned over the one girl uh, when or not Wendy um, uh, snake bite uh, snake bite Andy because she would put yeah. a snake bite on pedophiles. Um, <laughs> she uh, when she got turned, what was it? Grandpa Joe said that they were like the the lost ones or I'm um, not the forgotten ones. Remember. Um well this tribe of people that eat the shining. What did you think of them being the the antagonists in this case like versus the fact that like it was kind of like a haunted house story in the last one? I thought it was an interesting way to take it. Um I didn't really mind it so much. I I did think to me, the funniest scene in the movie is when, when they fight back against the lost ones, and it's like we gotta get them so that they don't kill this little girl. We gotta make sure that everything's taken care of, and we gotta make sure that she's okay. How do we do that? We shoot them with guns. Oh, do you have special bullets? No, regular bullets. We just shoot them, 
and then they start twitching and they die. Like, From, that's, that scene, I was laughing really hard in that scene. And not because I was like, this is so stupid. I was just laughing because I was like, this is so insane that they're just like, what's the best way to fix this problem? Guns. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I mean, that sequence, I mean, that sequence when the ambush actually will kind of sort of worked. Like, I thought that was awesome. I love that part of the scene where... Uh, they just blast them all down, and we get to see them all like uh, just turn into the shining dust or whatever. I honestly kind of really loved that sequence. Um, but uh, I mean, if we want to isolate any of the one actor specifically that um, was from that troop of. Uh, can we just talk about Rebecca Ferguson for a second and how good she was? Like, do you remember what other movies that she was in? No. She was in she was in the last couple Mission Impossible films. Really? Yeah, she was in um um oh, uh she was uh Isa Faust or Isla Faust. She was in Fallout and uh, Rogue Mission. Well, I only saw Fallout one time. And I didn't see the other one. You didn't see Rogue Nation? No. You saw Fallout without seeing Rogue Nation? Wait. I haven't seen the most recent one. Okay, so that was Fallout and you saw Rogue Nation. Okay, yeah. She's like kind of sort of a love interest but also like um okay. she wears shirts yes yeah, she wears shirts um <laughs> i mean i, what, I what's your, what's your role in this movie uh you wear shirts uh look cute and tease tom cruise and be in a couple gun shoots um, and then i also suck up people's miss out of their face <laughs> yeah um i just i just wanted to throw it out there that I mean, she was really good in the supporting roles that she had in the Mission Impossible films, but, but, good lord, she was she was terrifying in this movie, dude. Like, what was what was funny was when so when she goes to Abra's uh, house, and Abra like gets her trapped in like a dream or whatever. Um, well, not a, when, not a dream when when Abra like gets inside her head. Yeah, with the filing cabinet thing. Uh, so after that scene, she get, like she, after she gets her hand closed in the filing cabinet, and, like rips a bunch of her skin off trying to get her hand out. Uh, and she like her and the other guy are like, we have to get her. And I was like, you know what? This kid has twice shown that she can very easily defeat you. Maybe you just move on. <laughs> like maybe you just give up entirely. Because yeah, this kid, this kid is treating you like a rag doll with absolutely no effort. Well, you're you're glossing over. Um, it wasn't that was after when she was just minding her own business, just hanging out in the grocery store. Which, I mean, I just kind of was thinking about like, okay, like how do they have the money to just go hang out in Kroger for an hour or two? But. She realizes that her mind's uh, been tapped. I did tapped. have one question, actually, what? that that scene kind of raised. Okay. So they talk about, like, we're hungry, we're starving, we need more mist. Do they still actually, like, 
eat and need that to live too or is it just the steam well no it's clearly they have to have like normal human substance like uh food and water and all that but i mean otherwise why else would she be in a kroger or whatever store that was for the scene no i no i don't i don't buy that um Yep, sorry. There we go. Um, but no, I I that was another one of my favorite scenes when uh she realized that her mind had been tapped and she tried to reach out and was just like, oh hello there, and she touched her head, uh Abra's head, and she's just like, get out, and literally and, threw her and across Ab- the and aisle. And Abra was like, this is empty, yanked. <laughs> honestly did that did that not make you jump a little bit when she threw her across the it, aisle it it didn't make me jump because it was in the trailer the second time she did it made me jump because i was like oh my god she's still beating her up oh wait, wait you mean with the filing cabinet no the in the aisle that was in that was in the trailer Oh, oh, never mind. Okay. So no, the I... second shove in that scene, yes, that made me jump because I didn't expect it. But the first one, no, it did not because I was expecting it. Right, right. I, I do like the, the one worker. Like, this lady just, like, whether whether you know how or saw how it happened or not, this woman was standing by this refrigerator and the glass just exploded and she destroyed all your milks. And she's just like, are you okay? At no point does she go, you're going to have to pay for that. <laughs> You have to right. pay for this 87 gallons of milk. Jeez. <laughs> um, uh, I'm trying to think, like, um, I mean, they're, um, I mean, we haven't really dived, or we didn't really dive that much into um, the ending. What it really became when Danny decided to. Um, I mean, kind of really get involved with her. Like, I mean, we haven't really talked that much about, like, Danny himself, besides we just love Ewan McGregor's performance. Like, what did <laughs> and, you... And uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi fell on some hard times. Yeah, like, um, I read in the trivia that somebody asked Stephen King what happened to Danny after The Shining, and he kind of used that as kind of a basis for... What if Danny just inherited, or just not inherited, but um, kind of went down that same road of like dealing with like the alcoholism that Jack had, and well, that's that's some uh, that's something they talk about too. Like if if uh, alcoholism uh, ran in the family, like if if one person's an alcoholic, there's actually a good chance that multiple people in the family would be an alcoholic uh, through the generations. Yeah, that was that was kind of what I was talking about when we were talking about The Shining, like the fact that Stephen King had such an issue with with uh, Stanley Kubrick's film, like how he had such a personal connection to like the alcoholism versus like the supernatural aspect of it, or like the just more traditional like uh, bump in the night like horror aspects of it. I really admired that it took so much of Ewan McGregor's character arc, like just to dealing with not like the pain and the abuse, but cause obviously he acknowledges that he was so young, but he inherited this 
uh, this burden from his dad and it sent him down a really dark road. Like we never saw what happened to him and his mom, like whatever happened to Shelley Duvall. But apparently at some point uh, in his life, he just became a literal homeless alcoholic bum, just ending up drunk under bridges every night. Having sex with random people he met at a bar and then stealing their money and leaving their baby with poop in its pants and yeah. on a mattress on the floor with vomit on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he, you, know but what, then, you know what's funny? What? Thinking about it. Danny Torrance could have ended up as the Joker. Oh, that's actually kind of interesting. He kind of he kind of could have until he ended up becoming yeah. Doctor Sleep. Like, <laughs> uh, by the way, does anyone want to acknowledge the fact that that cat is a murderer? That cat is not a murderer. That cat shows up and the people are like, "Oh, that means it's my time to die." It's Isn't like, that a... uh, is that cat straight murdering people? No, that okay. That cat doesn't murder people. Is that isn't that a? I know I've seen that or read that where a cat knows just instinctually that somebody's on their nine lives from taking the lives of other people. No, like a cat will just instinctually know that this person needs comfort and will go to them. And then they just happen to die. Like that sounds like a myth. The cats would perpetuate. No, I, I can't remember what I read or saw, but I mean, maybe it was a work of pure uh, BS or fiction, but I could have swore. Want to go with that? I well, maybe it is. Uh, listeners, please email me what I'm talking about, because like I could have swore outside of Doctor Sleep. <laughs> We're gonna get that, three emails. They're just gonna say we have no idea what you're talking about. No, I could have swore I read or watched something that had cats going up to people who were on their last limb and once their toes curled because that was them passing on that's when the cats left like i i mean maybe it's maybe it was a work of fiction but i could have swore it was not i'm gonna go with a work of fiction (laughs) okay kind of dogs on the other hand (laughs) um but (laughs) Uh, I, 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 yeah, I liked, um, <laughs> I liked that scene where the guy's like, oh, the cat's here and everyone knows that cat only shows up when you're about to die. And then he's like, well, uh, let me go get you a doctor. And he goes, no, I think you are a doctor. I want to be like, well, the guy's told you three times he's not a doctor. Maybe he's not a doctor. Uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and to think about it too, like. Danny went through some pretty crazy trauma as a kid, and he's an alcoholic. Maybe give him a job that isn't as traumatic as, what do you do? I just wait for people to die. Well, okay, that's a pretty blunt way to put being a hospice worker. Like, (laughs) Is there any other – I actually don't know. Do they do anything else? Well, I mean, sure, you're technically waiting for someone to die, but, I mean, you're not just like – Sitting there next to them with a stopwatch, just going like, "Oop, okay." <laughs> <laughs> it's like the forty at the NFL combine. <laughs> like I, I, I don't Rich know. Eisen I decides th- to do it in a suit too. 
that was one of that was one of the only aspects of the film that made me really want to read the book more was that like maybe getting a little bit more insight as to how he acted as the doctor sleep like going yeah. inside their minds to calm them down when it was time for them to move on like in the in the way Stephen would write about the fulfillment that he would have in knowing that he was using his power for good like that like i love the way it was translated into the film but like i kind of wanted to read the way that he would write that though um I don't I'm know. not that a was big a... fan of reading. Um, <laughs> we know that already. Um. <laughs> uh, wow, way to make me sound stupid. Um, <laughs> I, I do want to. I do want to say one thing that I thought was a creative uh, writing thing for it was in the end when, uh, like in, early in the movie, Dick comes back and is talking to Danny through the shining telekinetic talkie thing. And uh, he's talking about, you know, he keeps he keeps seeing the ghosts from the hotel trying to, to attack him. And he's like, oh, they're going to try and get you because they're they're bad. So what you got to do is you got to lock them away in a box in your head. And so he locks all of them away in his head. And then I like that. He goes, you know, we need to go to this hotel because it's bad for people like us. But I know how to control it. But I, she's not going to know how. And so he unleashes every single one of the spirits at once on her, and they they all eat her mist. I actually really really liked it, and the way that he convinced her to look deeper into it by like, you know, I'm gonna let her hurt me because uh, pain and suffering and uh, fear uh, make the uh, the mist better. And so like she gets a whiff of like, what are you hiding from me? And he's like. Uh, I'm not hiding them from you. And uh, she goes, what's in there? Surprise. He goes, they're not a surprise, but they are starving. And he lets all them out at once. That I really like that scene. Oh, my God. That 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 kind of um, I really like that the way the film kind of tied in like the ghosts and the or uh, the kind of marauders that she was a part of, like together like that was one thing that was really odd to me was the the fact that Ian McGregor was haunted by ghosts that ate the shining along with the fact that there were these real life people that ate the shining too but um the way that he was well, able maybe to maybe the shining helps the ghosts stay around wait say that again maybe the shining helps the ghosts stay around i guess i mean like the ghost f- well, I mean, the fact that there's kind of demons on both sides and just the fact that when you shine, all darkness comes to you because they want to eat the shining. Like, I think that's kind of a really interesting way to take that story. Like, the fact that he had his own demons to deal with and then he was able to lock them up by drawing them into the shining and then he was over able to overpower them. And then on the, the actual reality side of it the shine is what draws her uh rose in the hat and all the other ones in and then they were able to beat them by shooting half of them to death but then no um, literally all of them rose well, no. is the only one left after that scene well yeah i'm just saying rose other gets... other than the one guy that crashes oh the guy that crashed in the car right um <laughs> um 
One thing I do want to point out, though, in that big confrontation after Rose figures out that she's getting tricked, uh, which, by the way, was an amazing recreation of the Hedge Mage. Um, Everything was an amazing recreation. Oh, for sure. Um, when Did you notice that when she's confronting Danny going up the stairs, it's kind of a reverse juxtaposition yep. where – Yep. Uh, instead of Wendy going up the stairs, Danny was, and then, um, I mean, you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. That was, uh, another one of my favorite moments of the movie was that, um, speaking of that scene, did you see a video this week of a guy that did a deep fake where he switched Jack Nicholson's face with Jim Carrey's face for that scene? Oh my God. Yeah, of, of course I did. That was amazing. <laughs> that was actually really funny. Um, when you come in. And you see me typing, that means I'm working. <laughs> I, I, uh, I did, I did like uh, that kind of juxtaposition in the scene, but the uh, the one thing that kind of follows that scene that I thought was really interesting was when uh, the. Uh, I don't know if they end up in room 237, but they end up in a room similar to 237, and it's got the bathtub lady in it. Yeah. Uh, I think. But Abra's like, I uh, I know the first thing he did is he went to the boiler room. Uh, I find it funny. Like, the boiler thing wasn't as big in the Stanley Kubrick one, was it? Well, in the novel, that's how... Because in the novel it is, and then in the Stephen King miniseries that came out in the 90s for it... The boiler room was a huge factor in that. Yes, I. I've, so I was like, I find it interesting that they tied in that to this when it wasn't that big in the Stanley Kubrick version. Yeah, you're right, because that's how Jack dies in the novel is that he dies in a boiler room fire. So the fact that Jack died um, completely differently in the movie, I I I can't say how. Danny dies or sacrifices himself or anything like that in the novel this time around. But the fact that he died the way that Jack did in the novel, whether he did or not in the book, is kind of a cool little nod to The Shining in that sense. Um, the way that he's sacrificing himself in general, given the context of the film, but it can also just be a little nod to the way that Jack died in the original novel, uh, regardless of yeah. how the, how the film ended. Um, that's, a, that's the thing I was talking about where like, you got to ride that fine line between being a sequel to a movie that basically abandoned the source material while being true to your source material at the same time, knowing that from a film viewer's standpoint, you're being a sequel to a movie that, again, ignored the source material, more or less. And, and I not just, only not only ignored it, was praised for ignoring it. Oh, Praise is one of the greatest horror films of all time. And I, I mean, I guess to wrap it up, I still think this is the Blade Runner 2049 of uh, horror films. Like Having not liked Blade Runner 2049, I'm not going to comment on that. Okay, well, okay, given the the precedence of trying to make a sequel out of something so landmark and beloved, 
and doing it pretty much as good as the original film, if not maybe a margin, like a splitting hairs less good than the original film. Uh, again, that's how I felt. Ooh, okay. Actually, I've got one more thing I want to point out to you. Sure. The scene where, uh, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, what's the actor's name? Ewan McGregor. The scene where Ewan McGregor is yeah. being interviewed in an office, uh, oh! not by not by his friend. By was the... I the only one that thought that looked exactly like the office Jack Nicholson was interviewed in? No, and thank you for pointing that out because I thought that exact same thing. And yes, I went online, and yes, for for whatever reason, I don't. I couldn't find a definitive, like, yes or no. Yes, they completely copied that office, but yes, you are right that that office that the hospital worker worked at was eerily identical to uh, the office that Jack was interviewing in. Because when... a lot of the angles they use and the, a lot of the expressions that Ewan McGregor gives are very similar to Jack's in that scene, too. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the framing... As well, like when you were cutting between the uh, um, the employer and uh, Danny, like they were eerily similar as well. Like they more or less like mirror copied those uh, those shots. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Right on. I mean, I uh, do you have anything else to add or other than that? No, I've I wanted to make sure we pointed that out. Right. All right. No, that's that was worth touching touching base on. So uh, with that, we both give it sprinkles, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Best horror movie we've seen uh, in theaters this year. Oh, it's uh, been a- way better than Annabelle. Way better than Curse of La Llorona. Way better than uh, Pet Cemetery. It's been a long time coming, but it was worth it for Doctor Sleep. Uh, yes, we both give it sprinkles, and easily the best horror film of the year, and. Who knows? Maybe it might end up on one of our best of the year lists. So (laughs) with that, uh, we are going to take a very brief break before we jump into the time machine and talk to you about the Flintstones. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show Nick and I have just gotten out of the time machine, and we have landed in Bedrock circa 1994, and we have just watched The Flintstones, starring John Goodman, Rick Moranis, uh, Elizabeth Perkins, Rosie O'Donnell, Kyle MacLachlan for some reason, and Halle Berry for some reason, and then the cherry on top, Elizabeth Taylor of all people. (laughs) I'm kind of surprised... Like, they get so many, like, 90s actors for this movie. I'm kind of surprised Whoopi Goldberg's not in it. That's actually a fair point. I'll I'll give you that. That's actually a fair point. I mean, I, I texted you when I started watching this, um, or actually uh, before I started watching this, when I was just looking over the cast list, how on earth did they get Elizabeth Taylor in this? The, no, the first thing the first thing you texted me was how did that one guy get a different TV show after this or something? 
Oh, Kyle McLaughlin. Um, I was I actually while I was waiting on you. He was you, in the arms of the angels. <laughs> actually, Kyle. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, <laughs> anyone actually, wants to cry at one of my jokes? That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> actually, uh, Kyle McLaughlin. Um, I did uh, while I was waiting for Is you. Is he related off- to Sarah, by the way? No, he's not related to Sarah McLaughlin. Really? No, he's not. Um. Well, while I was waiting for you, I actually was looking it up, and uh, he actually had um, he actually had this film after Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks was ninety one and ninety two, so I had that mixed up in my head at the time. Talk about a fall from grace. <laughs> no kidding. Well, he got to come back to Twin Peaks when they revived it last year. So, and and he was on uh, Portlandia, and he was hilarious on that show. But uh, I mean, did you recognize him outside of this film? Uh, yes, and I don't know why, because I've not watched Twin Peaks. Okay. I mean, I, I didn't scroll through his home filmography, but that those are the two projects that I know him best from. Uh, but, uh, yeah, anyway, <laughs> uh, The Flintstones, based on the Hanna-Barbera cartoons from William Hanna and Joseph R. Barbera, uh, the film was directed by Brian Levitt and... Lo and behold, he didn't really have that prolific film career after this. Um, he did direct. Um, <laughs> you'll love this. Guess what Schwarzenegger film he directed? Was it before or after this movie? Uh, after this movie. End of days. No, he directed 1996's Jingle All the Way. Put the cookie down. <laughs> Jamie, Jamie, I need to get you your action figure for Christmas. <laughs> um, he also right Why isn't be- bad talking to me? <laughs> he also, right before this, directed uh, yeah, Beethoven, I'll- the big dog movie. Um, he also directed, uh, like Wait, I said, which Jingle- one? Weren't there like eight of them? Uh, yeah, he just directed the first one. Um, he also oh. directed, like I said, Jingle All the Way, Leave it to Beaver. Uh, he directed the sequel. Man, Viva he Rock directed Vegas. so many like only could be made in the '90s movies. Well, I mean, later on in his career, like he stuck to the family films. Uh, he did Snow Dogs. Are we there yet? Um, oh, he did. He do did big... Snow Dogs. Yeah, with uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. <laughs> Man, screw that movie. <laughs> that movie uh, actually... sucks. It's so boring. He actually did do Big to- uh, Beethoven's Big Break. I don't know where in the chronology that is but um oh all you beethoven uh like dedicated fans let us know (laughs) brandon points got to send my gmail.com yes gonna uh, keep us up at night (laughs) he also did direct um jackie chance by next door and looking at his resume that's the biggest the last huge film that he did uh, but yeah, uh, he also had a, he actually had a pretty good TV, uh, writing, uh, career. He, uh, I thought you were just gonna say he had a pretty good TV. No, <laughs> no, he, um, 65 inches. Pretty awesome. He actually worked on the Jeffersons, uh, happy days, uh, Gilmore, uh, actually, uh, Mork and Mindy married with children. He had a pretty good TV career as a writer. Oop, are you there? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought you were silent. I have, I have nothing to add to that. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a pretty good career as a writer. 
but um but anyway he was the helmer of the this live action adaptation of the flintstones and um i did pick this film but i kind of why (laughs) well i wanted to open the floor to you because i wanted your impression of the film uh i this wasn't the first time you saw this was it no it was the first time in like 15 years it seemed like yeah Uh, i mean it was okay i i like john goodman uh thing i find funny about john goodman and i don't know if you know this john goodman's from st louis um oh my god are you serious i'm dead serious how many times um okay here we go he's from he's from f afton is that oh yeah part of st louis county okay yeah wow okay he, um he uh he very recently actually had a bobblehead night at uh, Bush Stadium uh, for his Walter character from The Big Lebowski. Um, he did the uh, a bunch of the promotional videos to help the Blues uh, get the All-Star game for the NHL this year, um, which is funny. And I, and I bring that up because, one, I love St. Louis. But the other thing, too, it seems like he's always playing like an East Coast guy, like based on his accent and his and the way he acts. And it's like... Man, let him be from the Midwest. Um, well, did you did you see Roseanne? I mean, that was the pinnacle of Midwest. Yeah. Well, actually, no, I didn't. Um, You've okay. Well, oh, and okay. I'm not gonna gripe too much at you for that. I don't. This is. I don't really blame you for that, honestly. <laughs> Especially like, now. I don't really blame you. It was pretty terrible. Um, no, no, it's not a bad. No, I'm uh, kidding. On, okay, well, a, a sidebar. Honestly, like I watched Roseanne because it was on Prime during. Maybe maybe we should talk bad about this, and then uh, make a post about it on our Twitter and talk bad about Roseanne, and then have Roseanne Barr tweet something incredibly racist, and just have it like blow up in popularity, and then she'll be like, "I'm sorry, I was on Painkillers." Okay, I, I'm I, I'm down for that. I, I full <laughs> disclosure though, I did really like. What, I did watch Roseanne, like, I went through a little bit of a marathon on it on Prime, coincidentally, while she had all that stuff happening to her, because I was the only streamer that was still letting Roseanne be on it. <laughs> and honestly, it wasn't that bad. Like, I can see why it was so popular back then. And this was filmed while he was in the middle of filming Roseanne, like, he must have shot this on the side during hiatus. You you just seem so blown away about the Roseanne thing. I'm just amazed that Rosie O'Donnell was in this. I was like, oh, my God. Remember when she existed? Well, that's part of what we need to do with the time machine is that's part of it is giving a reappraisal and having those little moments of just like, oh, yeah, that was when that person was relevant. Yeah. When Rosie O'Donnell was relevant, so was Whoopi Goldberg. And that's kind of why I'm surprised that she wasn't in it because it seemed like they did multiple movies together and if they and if they didn't, if one of them was in it, if or if Rosie O'Donnell wasn't in it, Whoopi Goldberg was going to be in it. It was kind of weird. Well, I could see how there wasn't a person that she could play in the film. Like she wasn't going to play the Halle Berry role, but not you're saying Rosie O'Donnell or not Rosie O'Donnell. You're saying Whoopi Goldberg's not sexy with her lack of eyebrows. I I barely remember how she was in the 90s, but let's be honest, she, had, she was She shaved her eyebrows off. Well, let's be honest, she's not Halle Berry. Like Yeah, I know Halle Berry has eyebrows. 
I I'm just saying she she. Did would... you notice anything other than eyebrows? Yes, I I hear you. I don't remember. I don't distinct. I'm not gonna pull it up either to justify this, but <laughs> I'm gonna presume that they grew back and she's got eyebrows now. She does not. Okay, I <laughs> I don't want to stray too far from from this just strictly for her eyebrows, but um. We but should no, cast let's... Nicholas Cage to play her eyebrows. <laughs> oh, that was really shocking. Oh, I'm surprised. <laughs> oh, I'm very concerned right now. Eat me. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God. Well, um, I mean, since we're on the cast, I mean, well, no. Uh, did you have any other, like, general, like, hot take thoughts on the film before... My hot Did take. I have hot takes about the Flintstones? <laughs> a question that you never thought you would get proposed before. <laughs> the people are dying to know. No, I mean, it was okay. Um, it wasn't very good, but it didn't suck. Um, it just kind of like... It, it felt like it was a movie that was going through the motions through a lot of it. But based around the Flintstones and then with a cast of people from the 90s. Yeah. Uh, pretty much my my hottest take, honestly, is the entire time I was watching this movie, I just was sitting there like, why did Dan pick this? Like, this comes across like when I picked uh, Hackers because I didn't really think about my pick the entire week and then literally, like, right before we recorded the segment, I was like, oh, crap, I don't have a movie. Like, this seems like a movie I, I would pick in on, that I, kind of thing. And then and then Dan was like, I'm picking it because I thought about it for a while. I was like, that's kind of weird. Didn't I pitch? I, I thought I pitched Hackers to you, though. Didn't I? No, yes, because what I said is, oh, crap, I don't have a movie. What should I do? And you went, oh, well, you could do Hackers. And I was like, Hackers, got it. Like, it's all the effort that went into it. Okay. And it probably shows in the review because from what I remember, I did not really want to talk about that movie. <laughs> I see. I see what you mean now. Um, well, I guess to answer that question, why did I want to watch this? Um, we've been doing horror movies for the past five weeks, so I we picked to a pick... horrible movie. <laughs> uh, well, no, I don't. I don't think this is as bad as I was anticipating. Honestly, like, but in yeah, reality, I was anticipating like one of the worst things to come out of the '90s. Oh, no, there's many worse films than this in the 90s. Uh, But I wanted really to just – I was scrolling through Netflix and JustWatch.com, and I wanted something that was the absolute opposite of a horror film. So when I saw that The Flintstones was on Netflix now, I figured this was perfect. It's a family film. It's based on a cartoon, and it allows us to talk about – a live-action adaptation of a cartoon, which we've never had before, and it's our first film with John Goodman. Like, it just seemed perfect. It's and not our first John Goodman movie. Wait, what was our other John Goodman movie? You're joking. You don't remember his role in Death Sentence. Oh, you're right, you're right, okay. No, you're you're right, okay, my bad. But Of course I'm you- right. You forgot, though, that this is actually our second Elizabeth Taylor film, so I can throw that at you. Well, I, it's not so much that I forgot. I had her mixed up with a different actress. You had her mixed up with who? 
I, I when you said Elizabeth Taylor, for some reason I thought it was Wilma and not Wilma's mom. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, God, no, no. Elizabeth Taylor obviously was going to be not that young in the '90s when she was that young in the '60s. <laughs> <laughs> she, she dances like she got younger. Thirty years <laughs> later. Yo, if she looked that good thirty years later, I mean, God bless her. I mean, she still looked pretty good for. She didn't look like she was about to go into the grave. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, but no, I'm just. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's really why I wanted to pick this film was that I wanted to really change the pace and I wanted to pick a movie that I wasn't sure that either of us were gonna really like and uh, just given the whole um, that whole aspect like I said about this like being based on a cartoon it's a whole family film and it's goofy and. I I'm with Nick. I didn't hate this film either. Um, I definitely didn't like it. Um, I I was on the fence before we started taping, and I I have a lot of issues with the story and the tone of the film. But uh, yeah, the movie is Tommy Boy, but the Flintstones. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, but no, I just I gotta I gotta give kudos to the the whole art department for this film. Like that's more or less the reason why I, I want to give a lot of kudos to the practical effects department. Oh yeah, them too. Not like, the CGI department. A huge plus of this film is that they actually like probably under the the fact that Spielberg helped pay for this film because this was made under uh, his production banner Amblin Entertainment. Um, they did not spare any expense when it came to any of the sets any of the costumes uh the fantastic practical effects um a really surprisingly great blend of cgi and practical with uh dino the dog too i was very shocked at how well he looked in the film um eh. Eh. oh oh come on he and dino didn't look bad eh. Uh, okay i okay we'll we'll agree to disagree on that um but really that's the only reason i don't give this a cookie because um i mean otherwise outside of that outside of the artistic uh aesthetic of the film this honestly was not a really good script and i mean talk about uh you talked about steven spielberg for a second and it had so many like close-ups of feet i thought uh uh uh, who's the guy that did? Uh, Are you talking Tarantino? Hollywood. Yes, I thought Tarantino directed it. Uh, well, Tarantino didn't have res- or, or hold on, no, wasn't uh, uh, V O U R. Hold on, when did Reservoir Dogs come out? Uh, Reservoir Dogs came out. Oh, okay, no, two years before this. Reservoir Dogs was '92, so theoretically your idea could have worked, but <laughs> that's pretty funny, like. This is the movie that inspired Tarantino. He saw yeah. this and he's like, I gotta do fate. He made Reservoir Dogs and then he saw the Flintstones on a whim and it was just like, oh, you can't have that many close-ups of feet on film. He, he, saw, he saw the Flintstones he's like, screw what I'm doing, I'm gonna do this. I, it, this, was, this was the epiphany for him that he could tell his own stories while also uh, fetishizing feet as much as he wants to. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to, th- uh, but yeah, that was uh, back to. I mean, my hot take. I mean, there's, there are the the acting's really not that bad in the film. Like, 
it it I, I I can appreciate that it hones in at least in the first half of the film the whole just being the Flintstones like John Goodman you said like you said he's really committed to this performance and he's the best actor in the film but uh, I mean Rick Moranis from Honey I Shrunk the Kids and Little Shop of Horrors he's awesome as Barney uh elizabeth perkins is really good at least at emulating wilma i mean i don't think she's given that much to really work with per se more than like say rosie o'donnell like rosie o'donnell's actually got a interesting um she has a pretty surprisingly good performance um and she's got a lot to emotionally carry with everything that uh barney goes through um but that also can segue into my issues with the second half of the film where holy crap this is not really a kid's film anymore like why on earth would a kid care about the whole dynamic between uh the job promotion and the social inequality and um other things that are kind of actually surprisingly adult for a film that's aimed for kids i mean do you kind of agree or see where i'm going at i mean i see what you're getting at but i don't really know that this was super made for kids because it's the 90s and the only time i remember ever really seeing the flintstones was i was sick like in kindergarten or first grade and i remember seeing the flintstones then but they weren't really that like relevant to me so I don't really think this was made for kids. I think maybe like maybe the first half was made to be more kid friendly just to keep in like with the style of the Flintstones, but in reality it was a movie really made for adults. Okay, well I I that's more of a reference to the Flintstones than I have. Like I know I know clips and I I mean I'm aware of who they are, but I mean honestly like if you gave me like a quiz about like the Flintstones in general, even like the easiest like BuzzFeed quiz about it, I'd probably fail it all. Like I can't recall any of the like what people would call like the most memorable episodes of it. Like so, I mean, that might be just false for me to try and draw a comparison between it and the show because I mean that's not fair because I don't honestly remember it that much. But I but but the but the sheer fact that like I mean it, it seemed like a kids show, wasn't it? Like. Or maybe yeah, that's just a, a false way. Show. Okay, well, I mean, so let's. I mean, I that's the thing. Like, I can't say that with certainty if I'm being completely transparent with myself. So, I look at this just as okay. I'm assuming this is for kids, but this is a surprisingly pretty adult story and adult situations that all these characters are going through. So now it's an adult film. Why would adults care for this super stylized, super goofy approach to a story this serious? Like, that clash in tone is really, especially, like I said, in the second half of the film that I have the biggest issues with. Like, who is this for, I guess, is the big question. Because it's not for kids, but it's not really for adults either. It's not serious well, enough and it's not goofy enough. It be like, who is this for is just like... The way it's set up, it feels like a collection of weird things happening that could be put into any order. Like the scene where they're at the park, like the dialogue I get, you you have to have at that point in the movie. But like, what happens? Oh, well, they take the kids to the park after shopping 
and then a pterodactyl attacks, and for some reason that terrifies everybody, and then it poops on someone's car. Oh my god, I texted you after I watched that scene, because I was so confused, just like, okay, we're going to completely interrupt this really serious moment for just a really terrifying scene where, like, holy crap, where's this going to go? And then it just went with a poop joke, and let alone if you think about it, we domesticated pterodactyls to be airplanes, but... We still have to worry about random wild ones that are going to crap on our cars? Like, I mean, maybe I'm overthinking it, but <laughs> that was – that was all those thoughts went through my head right after that scene happened. But <laughs> it was yeah, just – Yeah, I, I just was watching that scene. I was like, that could literally – A, that doesn't need to be in the movie, but B, that could go anywhere in the movie. And other than the dialogue being discussed in the scene about like – uh, the rebels being broke and how Barney's having a hard time with jobs. Like that's the, the scene part of it could go literally anywhere. Well, it doesn't really fit with the rest of the film either because there's not really any other kind of threat in the film. We hadn't other... been reminded that it, they were like living in Jurassic times, I guess uh, for, in like three minutes. Well, okay. I, but at the same time, it's just like, okay, well, uh, these animals are domesticated except for, we have to worry about random pterodactyls, but every other dinosaur opens our Coke bottles and uh, digs holes in the what construction What about the dinosaur site. that opens the Coke bottle and then they, like, pan to him and it's like, oh, he's going to say something clever and witty. He's like, this job sucks. <laughs> okay, yeah. man. But that's what I'm saying is, like, we've completely domesticated them otherwise and, like, for their little puns and whatnot. Like, there are showers, there are garbage disposal, but we still have the just apparently pterodactyls, even though there are, are airplanes. Like, that was honestly the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. What, that one shot in the beginning where everybody's riding a pterodactyl and they're just like, oh, right, we're landing in bedrock. Thanks for flying with us. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, that's, that's horrifying just to even think about right, being on that as it, like, this is my way home. Yeah, like. I mean, if we're, uh, let's go ahead and overthink it. Like, being up that high in the sky, how thin the air would be, all the wind at you. Like, it's cold. You, yeah, it's cold. As, oh, my God. Imagine how cold that would be. You could like, just fall out and die and explode. I would rather, like, use my own momentum to move my car and then somehow still have a radio. Like... <laughs> This is a this is a time and age where you have to run your car yourself, and <laughs> somehow car salesmen can still sell a car. Where did you notice in the Ritzy Cars dealership they had a sign that said zero to sixty? Which how on earth would that happen when it still all relies on your own feet? Like, <laughs> I just thought that was pretty funny. Nope. Are you still there? Sorry, I fell asleep. Oh, shit. Are, are you good? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, well, I was talking about, like, how funny that was that um, they went to a ritzy car dealership that had the 0 to 60 sign, when in reality, like, that only matters if you could actually run that fast. <laughs> <laughs> 
like, I, my my favorite one was the uh, the McDonald's one where it was like nineteen dozen served. Yeah. I like the fact that they at the very beginning when they were actually pretty accurately recreating the uh, uh, the opening titles, uh, they went and saw Tar Wars. Like. Eh. I thought that was. I thought that was. Just I, I only a, liked it because of our Star Wars recap tying in with our show. But I was like, none of this isn't Star Wars. It's not funny. Yeah, I. That's all I was getting at. Was just like otherwise, I'd just be like, okay, that's kind of a lazy pun. But I just thought that was funny in the moment, just because we are doing the Star Wars recap. But yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, what about um? So I, I I like in the scheme where he's like. We're going to embezzle money, and then they get get him appointed, and they're like, they're like, here, let's just have him sign the papers, and they're like, no, let's first we must test him. Like, what? Why are you testing him? Why don't you just get what you want, and then get away faster? Like, why are you dragging this process out? Well, that's because what that's what every bad guy does. They always think they're one step ahead, and they think they're so clever, and. That's what blows up in their face and gets them covered in concrete at the end of the film. <laughs> I like that he invents concrete, uh, and when it start like when it fell over the edge of that cliff, I actually thought it was like molten hot tar. <laughs> and I was I like, I was like, I, oh my god, that's gonna be like excruciatingly painful for him. I was I didn't realize like up at that point that like. That was supposed to be the invention of concrete. Like when Mr. Rubble, the president, is just like, you've invented concrete. And I was just like, oh, that's what he did? What? <laughs> what about the guy where he's like, we're going to use the power of steam. And the one guy's like, steam, he's mad. I was like, yes, he's mad for boiling water. I thought that, was, I thought that line was kind of funny. Kind of like um, I also really like the um, when they're in the uh, the bowling alley with uh, the, the the water buffalo uh, fraternity or club, whatever that is. And they're just like, do you think you're going to get a strike, Fred? And he's just like, is the earth flat? <laughs> <laughs> what about when he's like, he's like, we don't need them. There's four thousand other people on this planet. Yeah. <laughs> I, my dad ate red meat for the for the entirety of his life, and he lived to the ripe old age of 38. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure you're over 38 filming this movie. Like, <laughs> nah, the the years used to be longer. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, what? Let's talk a little bit about like the actual like the plot itself, like how it all hinged on Barney thinking that. It was actually equivalent in action to switch his test when in reality he should have realized that he was actually that much way smarter than Fred and the opportunities that would come from a promotion really if you think about it should have outweighed the prospect of having a kid or am I thinking of that wrong like I don't know the, the thing for me about the promotion was I, I just kept thinking from like an HR perspective. I was like, man, yeah, they can they can do the test and do that for someone to get promoted. That's fine or whatever. But I was like, if they were to fire someone based off the results of this test, when in reality there's no reason for them to take it, 
uh, they could probably be sued for some reason, and they're like, we need you to fire him because he, sur- he scored the lowest on the test. I was like, oh, okay, they could definitely fire him for that. Or not fire him. They could definitely get sued for that. That's actually a really good point, like, because that wasn't technically part of his job performance. Like, in reality, yeah. he probably was really, really good at his job. Like, like Daniel Tosh, like that joke where it's just like, oh, I'm a bad t- – or, or I guess you could make that joke of Daniel Tosh made the, uh, oh, I'm a bad test taker. Oh, you're bad at the way oh, we yeah, measure yeah, yeah. you, uh, and your aptitude in life. Like, <laughs> Where he's, he's like, he's like, I'm a bad test taker. Oh, I'm a brilliant artist, but whenever my brush hits canvas, I develop Parkinson's. Right, that joke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess they looked at it that way, given however good he was at the rest of his job. Nope, you were bad at a test. (laughs) But I don't... I can understand, like, I gotta pay my buddy back in any way that I can. But, like, really? You're gonna give him the opportunity of a promotion when you should have known that you were way smarter than him? Like, I mean, he did pay for your kid, in reality. Like, let's be honest. He literally paid for his kid. Dude, the ADR on Bam Bam pissed me off. Yeah, it bothered you that much? Just ADR on a kid? It bo- it bothered me because, like, he, he wouldn't even move his mouth. Like, he would just, like, slightly open it, and they're like, he definitely shouted Bam Bam. No, he did not shout Bam Bam. Well, If I'm, anything, he just went, ah. I, I, if I'm going to be completely honest, I was not really paying attention to his mouth that much. Like... <laughs> <laughs> did you notice that with like pebbles too or no pebbles was fine oh also speaking of speaking of the adoption stuff uh what was with the 90s and being being obsessed with having orangutans in their movie i don't know because that was like a whole genre of movie was like orangutan slash ape in a in like strange circumstances movies and then this movie's like by the way there's just gonna be apes in it for some reason. Are you sure you're not just thinking about that Clint Eastwood movie? No, like, dude, do you not remember MVP Most Valuable Primate? Was that an orangutan? It was a monkey. Orangutans aren't monkeys. <laughs> uh, well, they're hairy and they poop. What? What, what title? They're hairy and they poop. Oh, <laughs> I don't. I remember Mighty Joe Young about the giant gorilla. Came out in the nineties. I remember George of the Jungle with um oh uh for uh with uh from Brendan the mummies. Fraser. Yes, Brendan Fraser. Yeah, I love that movie. I love George of the Jungle too. This is the part where we throw our heads back and laugh. <laughs> I remember that was the first time I saw Leslie Mann. That was, I thought that I thought she was awesome. Like wasn't I, she like the girlfriend in a uh, cable guy? Oh, uh, I th- oh she was in cable guy. Wasn't she who she went out? Wasn't she the girl that Owen Wilson was on the date with before he beat him up in the bathroom? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. She was the girlfriend in cable guy. Oh, okay, right. Yes, yes, yes. She was. But I, I'm just saying I saw George in the Jungle before I saw Cable Guy, obviously, because I just saw that back in May for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine your family just being like, 
So we're going to show you Cable Guy, and you're like four years old. Well, in reality, that kid was kind of me. Not the abandoned, abusive parental relationship at all, but like whenever I wasn't doing sports or at school, like I would – I mean, Dan well, shut himself off in his room and had no friends. It was called. It's okay. The, I did the same thing. It was my basement, and I would just watch whatever I wanted. Wow, way to make it sound like you tied people up. Well, I didn't have a TV in my room, and we had a basement in my house, and there was a TV, and nobody cared whenever I ran downstairs to the basement as long as I came up for dinner. <laughs> as long as I came up for air. <laughs> yeah. And as long Dang, as I went been to... down there 10 hours, and I think you're holding your breath. <laughs> Got an oxygen tank. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. The... <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I don't have much to say about this movie. Like, it's a really thin movie. It's... I I, I find it very forgettable. I, the last time I saw it, I think I was, like, less than 10 years old. I forgot it existed. I'm, I'm going to forget this exists. It's not... There's nothing really all that memorable about it. Well, what was your favorite utility? Let me ask you that. Uh, Probably the soda machine that said this sucks. Because <laughs> it got me to laugh that one time. I, I... I won't say it's my favorite, but the thing that got me the biggest reaction was uh, the shower uh, elephant. Because when he was in the shower, like, after he got the promotion... And he gargled the water and spat it out. I, I audibly gagged. I was like, uh, uh, that came out of that elephant's nose. Like, you, you, you don't remember the scene where she does that with, like, the lettuce? Wait, what? Washing she the- uses the same elephant as in the kitchen sink to clean lettuce <sighs> that they that's, then eat okay, and don't that's- spit out. That's uh, okay. That's true too. But I mean, not gonna lie. Like I didn't, for some reason, I didn't actually mentally like. I didn't really register it in that moment the same way I did. Just because it that's that's the shower, and he was drinking it. Like, yes. Let it be known, people, that if you want to make Dan uncomfortable, just walk up to him, pry his mouth open, and spit in it. Yeah. Just me. That's only a problem that I would have in this world. <laughs> Everyone else is just sitting there like, give me that. <laughs> oh, God. Ugh. Okay. I'm honestly, uh, the only other thing I have is um, trivia wise. Like, uh, I just wanted to throw it out there just for you all. If you didn't know who it was, um, that was the B-52s that was doing the <laughs> that was doing the theme song that was for doing the, the theme song sorry i ruined the mood by talking about spitting in people's mouths <laughs> <laughs> okay well i uh, mean what was your what was your rating single brownie yeah i just it's yeah i give it a single brownie too it's just the tone of the film really in the second half is just so jarring and it just it's so bothersome that it can't really decide like who the audience is for like the acting is fine the visuals are beautiful like i mean from an artistic perspective nothing nothing cinematography wise or the practical effects are great the cgi kind of leaves me wanting and yeah there's nothing like cinematography wise that's outstanding 
Yeah, no. It's just outside of the fact that, like, they actually – in the 90s, you had to put in the effort practically to make this world come to life. And, Unless I mean, you were George Lucas. Uh, yeah. Like, and that's really the biggest compliment then you can give this digital film. digital the crap out of it. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah, again, outside of that, I mean, there's nothing really that special in it. Like, it's it's surprisingly good acting and good talent just kind of not even, like, wasted. It's just, I mean, the... Just the, not, not, like, realized it, to its full potential. Yeah, it just kind of comes off like a cash grab, like, the it, way it plays well, no, out. It, it honestly comes across as, like, they never really had an idea, and then at the last minute they're like money laundering go or they're like they're like well we have this idea for like several like live action flintstone skits but we don't have like an overarching story and then they went and watched tommy board they're like i got it let's put that in there for some reason tommy boy was popular or no was tommy boy after this i feel like tommy boy was after this yeah i think chris farley was dead by that point no, Chris, uh, Tommy Boy came out in 95. So Tommy Boy stole their plot from the Flintstones. I'm sorry, Tommy Boy was actually, you know, like, good. That doesn't mean they didn't plagiarize. And with that... Well, sometimes <laughs> if you plagiarize and you do it better, you deserve the credit. Ask Babe. Wait, what did Babe rip off? Uh, some other pig movie, what's it called? So it had Pig Party in the House <laughs> was the song. <laughs> Again, nostalgia critic. But yeah, it uh, Babe ripped off some, came out after some movie. That's a bombshell. I didn't know that. Yeah, but your life's ruined. <laughs> my, my whole world perspective is ruined. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, honestly, like I'm kind of. Out of uh, out of thoughts on this film too, like it's yeah, it's it's there's nothing to really discuss. Nothing really happens. Thankfully, it's ninety minutes, but yeah, yeah. I, like the, part of the reason I kept thinking the entire time we were watching is why did Dan pick this movie? Is there was nothing else to think about. Well, like this I movie, said, this movie does not really engage your brain. No, it doesn't. I I like I said, I just want something to completely deviate away from five weeks of horror films and this did it we didn't it wasn't the most enjoyable but this cue up door the explorer we did it we did it did you like watching dora more than this because i definitely did oh hell yeah because i was like (laughs) losing my mind there wasn't boots is over there having a stroke in terms of poop joke appreciation, I enjoyed Dora's Holy poop crap, song. Holy crap, there's a black cat on the field of the Giants-Cowboys game right now. What? There is a black cat running around on the field of the Giants-Cowboys game right now. Oh. It's a pretty big one, too. Um, okay. Uh, interesting. Do you want me to tie us back in so I could close no, it? No, I was, I was wondering if uh, you'd heard from Jerry lately. No, Jerry, Jerry's Jerry's sleeping on the chair because I'm recording on the couch. Are you sure? Yes, I'm looking at Jerry. He's sleeping on the chair. What about Beth? Beth is sleeping on my bed like she always does because she never gets off the bed unless I pour food. Or what she about wants their to fight love Jerry. Child of, of Barry? 
Uh, no, Barry is on hiatus right now, according to HBO. <laughs> what about Jeff? I don't know, Jeff. Jeff, my name is Jeff. <laughs> well, I think with that, we should take a break and let you know what we got going on next week. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, that is it for another episode of Brownie Points. As always, <laughs> way to jump the gun. <laughs> As always, thank you to Isla Marfin of Fugue for the bumper music between each segment. <clears throat> we really appreciate it. Next week, Nick and I are going back to the theaters twice. Oh, it's been a while since we've had a double feature. We are going to be watching Ford versus Ferrari. Starring Christian Bale. You actually got the title right. Yes, yes. Oh my God, that's. We'll talk about it in a sec. Um, <laughs> it stars. <laughs> it stars Christian Bale and Matt Damon. <laughs> and it's from. What was that? Dude, have you not seen the South Park movie? Nah. Uh, yes, I have, but I don't remember that. Dude, they are. Uh, uh, oh, sorry. No, not te- not that. It's uh, that's a Team America joke. Remember? I've not seen Team America. Oh, oh, that's that's right. That joke wouldn't make sense to you then, um, <laughs> because uh, because throughout the movie there's celebrity cameos, and every time that Matt Damon comes up, uh, for some reason they have Matt Damon only able to say his own name, but like that. <laughs> Off mic, He's I'm a gonna Pokemon. Off mic, I'm gonna send you a video of that where throughout the movie it's just it, Matt Damazard. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not joking. I can find a clip on YouTube of uh, every moment in Team America when he just goes Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, it stars Matt Damon and Christian Bale, and it's from director James Mangold, uh, who most famously directed uh, Walk the Line and Logan. Um, <clears throat> The other film that we're going to be watching is the uh, all fe- or uh, <clears throat> not all female because the other one was female too. Um, we're watching the we're watching the reboot of Charlie's Angels. <laughs> the all female reboot. Well, what was the first one? God, I am all over the place. We're watching the reboot of Charlie's Angels. <laughs> are you are you still trying to figure out if it's a dumpling or if it's a ravioli? Yes, that just shattered my mind um, all the way through this episode. Um, but yeah, that's what we're watching next week is Ford versus Ferrari and the in the reboot of Charlie's Angels. Um, uh, Charlie's Angels, of which uh, comes to us uh, courtesy of um, oh oh why am I spacing on her name? I should have it up here in front of me. Uh, the the person that directed uh, Pitch Perfect. Uh, yeah, oh, I'm not gonna know that. God, sorry, God, I am so awful at having my notes up here. Uh, Elizabeth Banks. So yeah, she is not making her directorial debut, but she is helming this uh, adaptation of Charlie's Angels, uh, which has uh, Kristen Stewart, Naomi Scott, and uh, Ella uh, Blinska. Sorry if I mispronounced that name. Uh, But yeah. But take a number if you want to file a complaint with them, because that's not the first one. 
Yeah, uh, if you have a bingo card, uh, you can mark off Dan finally uh, mispronounced a name. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean, finally? Because uh, I do it in every episode. and uh, Yeah, I know, but I'm pretty sure you have by this point. Uh, so yeah, sorry guys, I can't keep my notes straight. Uh, yeah, we're going to be watching Ford vs. Ferrari, and we're going to watch uh, the Elizabeth Banks-directed uh, Charlie's Angels reboot. Uh, Nick, keep me from talking anymore, and uh, let the people know where we're going to go in the time machine next week. <laughs> uh next week we're gonna go take a look at our first found footage movie uh it's a movie i when it came out i was actually interested in going to see and then just never saw it's uh the found footage horror movie as above so below yes i don't know what year uh i have my notes for that up and it is from 2014 and just so you all uh remember we threw out the 10-year minimum rule for the time machine uh what was it like two three weeks ago no one could really enforce it but us yeah but i mean like we've i mean we've kind of just kept i we just coincidentally kept with it um but no this is our first real foray into um something that was less than 10 years old and yeah it's a it's a found footage horror film. So shocker, we're going back to horror movies. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's from uh, John Eric uh, Dowdle, if that's how you pronounce his last name. Uh, but yeah, and it's from 2014, and it is on Netflix if you want to watch along with us. Uh, Nick, how about you let the guys now know where they can reach out to us on social media? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Brownie Points Guide to Cinema, at Brownie underscore Cinema, and uh, Brownie underscore Points underscore Guide, uh, respectively. The show logo, the bowl of popcorn with a brownie in it, is the uh, uh, profile pictures for all of them. We also have a Gmail, uh, Brownie Points Guide to Cinema at gmail.com. Send us Brownie Bites ideas, movies you want to make sure we make time to see in theaters, uh, time machine topics, list ideas. Um, uh, you know, opinion ideas, and also answer the poll question: Is a pop tart, a toaster strudel, a hot pocket, or a pizza roll? Is it a ravioli or is it a dumpling? We must know. <laughs> yes, we must. Um, and if you are listening to us and have not hit that subscribe button, go ahead and hit that. Uh, also leave us a star review and a written review um, to help raise awareness of where we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Anchor.com, and all other platforms supported by Anchor. Um, whether you have been with us from the beginning or just joined us, uh, we really appreciate you. And uh, we love the feedback that we're getting on social media. Um, our Instagram game is strong. Uh, we've met a lot of awesome people on there and same with facebook we have a great facebook following twitter you guys are slacking get get together twitter um sad <laughs> um but yeah um that is all that we got for this week's episode and like we said next week we will be coming at you with ford versus ferrari charlie's angels and as above so below we will see you then Yabba Dabba Hot Pocket. Are toaster strudels raviolis or dumplings?
What? <laughs> You've never heard this question? No. What? I've literally been kept up at night from this question. Wait, say it are one more time. Are toaster strudels slash pop tarts? Are they dumplings or are they raviolis? Um, I, tactic, what? Neither? I. That's really. I, Same thing goes for hot pockets, man. Ooh. I've lost sleep over this. Okay, that's way more perplexing when you propose it as a hot pocket. Because I guess you could say a hot pocket is just a big ravioli. I think that's the first time that sentence has ever been uttered. 